We're honored to have Elizabeth Nevins, Principal of Seed Education Consulting, as our moderator this evening. Ms. Nevins advises on and creates educational experiences and interpretive content for museums and historic sites. She holds a bachelor's degree in history from Yale University and a master's degree in museum education and early adolescent education from Bank Street Graduate School of Education. Ms. Nevins has consulted with numerous organizations locally and regionally, including the Leventhal Map Center at the Boston Public Library, the Newport Art Museum, and the Freedom Trail Foundation. She serves as co-chair of the New England Museum Association's Education Professional Affinity Group on the board of the Museum Education Roundtable and as a peer reviewer for the Journal of Museum Education. Tonight, Ms. Nevins will lead the discussion about why and how art reproductions are made and what the consequences of their use are. Please join me in welcoming Elizabeth Nevins and our panelists to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you, Hannah, and thank you so much for inviting me to come here this evening to, um, first of all, get to hear these wonderful speakers who we have in store for you and to chat a little bit about um, a topic that's definitely uh, rising through the ether within the museum field about um, reproductions in the digital age, certainly, um, and how our people in our audiences, um, whether abled or, or um, um, not uh, less abled, I suppose, uh, who, um, how they're accessing our materials um, in, in the 21st century. So I am very pleased to introduce our three speakers. Um, we have tonight Steve Jarina, who is the owner of Artopio, excuse me, Artopio Giclet, a digital fine arts reproduction and photography studio located in Melrose, Massachusetts. And his clients are many, but a partial list includes the USS Constitution Museum, MIT, Boston College, the Peabody Essex Museum, um, the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, and the John Singer Sargent House. Um, he is, has also worked with many artists, over 500 artists, um, in um, reproducing their work. In January of 2016, Steve began working with artists Chris Volpe and Ann Birch, creating more than 450 reproduction prints of Chris's paintings for the historic Wentworth Hotel in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Over the past decade, Steve has developed a unique system, which I'm sure he's going to fill us in about, for digitally reproducing large paintings on fine art paper and canvas. His method employs enormous digital capture files and special lighting. Um, following Steve, we will hear from Hannah Goodwin, who is the Manager of Accessibility at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. In addition to serving as the museum's ADA 504 coordinator, Hannah oversees access to art and feeling for form to visitor-centered programs emphasizing multi-sensory experience and interactive engagement. She has presented widely on a variety of access-related topics. Um, the NFA uses reproductions of art um, as points of access for visitors who are blind or have other disabilities for and whom tactile engagement is important. Um, Hannah has a BFA from the School of the Museum of Fine Arts, which is part of Tufts University, and an, a Master's of Fine Arts from the Mass College of Art. She spent a semester 
at Instituto Superior de Arte in Havana, Cuba. And immediately prior to working at the MFA, she taught art in a middle high school, middle high school for students with disabilities. So she definitely has hands-on experience. Jim Olson will be our final speaker tonight. He is the director of integrated media at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, where he leads the team that conceptualizes and produces all in-gallery interactives, web pages, and video and audio productions. He taught a course at um, Tufts University called Museums and New Media from 2007 through 11 and has worked at the Davis Museum at, the Wellesley, at Wellesley College for 12 years before he came to Penn. He has a master's degree in art history from the University of Massachusetts Amherst. So I would love to have Steve come up and talk a little bit about his work with reproductions. Thanks. Thank you very much. So I have to start off by saying I'm really honored to be here today to, to share what I know about uh, art reproduction and digital art reproduction. Can you hear me, first of all? Is it clear? Okay, good. Great. And uh, so uh, let me see if I can work this machine here. Um, again, my name is Steve Jurina. And the first question people might want to ask is, what is Gicle? Well, Gicle is just... It was a term that was coined by Graham Nash uh, of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Do you remember that group from the <laughs> from when I was young? Well, he decided once he got out of music to start an art reproduction business. And what he did, that's, that's Graham on the left in that photograph, and that's his staff there. What they did is they took an existing, um, it was a digital proofing machine that was used for commercial printers. Uh, they would use this machine to, if they were doing, say, a catalog or an advertising piece or a page in a magazine, they wanted to test the colors. So he took that machine and he took out the inks that were in it and replaced them with archival inks. And then he would print, print on um, artist papers of various sorts, like Arches papers, Hannah Mule papers. And so he was really the one who started this whole Gicle thing. Now, the term Gicle is kind of a funny one. It was coined by someone on his staff uh, as a way of refer. It was like it's a French word which means which means to spray, and so of course you got the association with uh, inkjet, and that's uh, how he came up with that term. It's just a prettying up of the of the, the whole process. Okay. Okay. Gicle printing. Uh, the whole pro there's a three-step process, or actually a four-step process. The first step is making a digital capture. And this can be done with a scanner. It can be done with a digital back on a camera. Um, it can be done with a 35 millimeter camera. And the idea is you want to create a really big file so you get lots of detail in your images when you, go, when you reproduce. After you do the digital capture, um, you get a big image. And then you have to test that image against the original. Um, this image was uh, one I did for the Marblehead Festival of Arts. I've been doing that for about eight or nine years, uh, maybe not eight or nine years, maybe like seven years. And they, they come to me with images every year which go into the Marblehead Festival of the Arts. They sell those at, um, as a fu fundraiser. And so what you do is you, you have to create these test prints and they have to kind of match the original. And I, I usually make a strip and I'll lay it up against the original and make sure the colors 
right. If it's not right, I go back into the computer, and then I'll adjust the color, and then I'll make tests. On the, on the left, you have the original print, and on the right, you have a copy that I made, uh, and those are tests that I created during the process of creating the final proof. And then once you get uh, your, your, your file, you have to have the artist sign off on it. And they come into the studio and, and they sign off and approve. If they don't like something, I correct it and make it better. And then after they do that, they come back, uh, and they, they may place their order, and then I do printing. Now, printing in G-Clay is, is unlike other printing in that you, the inks that are used are pigment inks. And pigments are, are the same pigments. They're basically ground-up rock. Now, artists have been using ground-up rock and minerals for, for generations, for, well, hundreds of years, longer, to um, create uh, paints. So they're very long-lasting. They don't degrade. So these are mixed with, in the ink formula. And then when you print, you print, I keep knocking this over, sorry. <laughs> there we go. So when you print, you print on an, uh, on, also on an acid-free paper, 100% rag, usually arches papers. A lot of the paper companies who were traditionally making art papers for artists over the centuries are now coating their papers, like Arches does that for their, for their uh, papers. And the same thing for Hanemule. And then once you get your prints made, um, they have to be finished. So I have a big room in my studio where I, have, I hang up some, these are on the top are some dig, digital prints by Gary Reynolds. And, um, and I use that wall, I use, it's a, a, a metal wall, and then I have magnets, they hold those prints up on the wall, and then I spray them. And the reason I spray them is because you have to seal the prints from environmental, um, like gases in the air, water, uh, and contaminants, and, um, and, that, and it makes it a little bit waterproof and UV protective also. And then the paper prints get in, put into, typically into sleeves. Those are some watercolor prints in the middle there by Ed Rice, which I did last week. And those go into sleeves, and then he'll package those up with a little thing about himself, and he'll sell those at art shows or in galleries or in a gift shop or whatever. Um, sometimes artists will have canvases made. Um, this is a, a big canvas by Ann Gaffey. I have a smaller version of it, just a test print over there on the left. Um, and the, so this is her order going out. So, oops, I think I went too far there. I said, I'm going the wrong way here. Let's see. I need to back up. Let's see. Okay, I got this. Okay, almost. Why G clay? That's what I want. Okay, so why do people do G clay printing? Okay, people do it, first of all, as a way to share family art. Um, I, had, I was approached by somebody who was a member of, of um, Richard Hayward, who was a member of the, um, um, uh, let's see, of, the, of, the, of the, uh, this Antonium, and he asked me to do this portrait. There's a copy of the portrait that I made over there. And he had his sister, he had four portraits, family portraits that had been in his family for generations. And so his sister, and of course they get passed down through the family, you know. So his sister wanted a copy, because he got them all. He was the male in the family. I guess it's just a tradition at one point. So she said, why, why can't I get copies? So, and she was a little annoyed by that. So he decided that he had to find a way of doing that. So he came to me and I made four reproductions for him about that size. One of them was in an oval frame of a woman. And then there was his son, this person's son. 
And um, also, some, the Talbot family came to me and, and asked me to do a reproduction. That's a copy of the canvas that I did. I shot, I went to their house and I shot it in, in, on the Cape. And um, it was in a small little room uh, over in a fireplace, really tight quarters. But because um, the way I shoot, I'm able to get in tight. And I, um, I was able to bring, shoot the image, bring it back to the, shoot the images back to the, bring the images back to the studio and then recreate a, a, a file that I could print from. It's also a way of sharing a, an original painting in a private collection. Now this painting, Punch and Carlo, um, it, is at the Taj Hotel in Boston. And that's, on that little image on the left, I included that. I took that with my cell phone. And you can see how awful the lighting is on that. It's got a spotlight over it. It's right in the lobby. It's backlit. There's no direct light on it. It's just really the, the worst conditions for viewing a painting. However, uh, um, one of my clients, John uh, Famigetti, uh, he came to me and said, I, I really love that painting, and my wife and I would love to have a copy of that. So uh, we've been admiring it for years. And so I said, well, I can go in and shoot it in the lobby. So, I did that, and then I made this uh, print of it. And then uh, it was, uh, the reproduction is the same size as the original. And uh, he gave that to his wife as a present for, I think, her birthday or an anniversary or something. She was, <laughs> I, I got such a good thank you letter from, from, from them about that. They really enjoyed that. So that was kind of cool. So uh, another way that, um, Artwork is reason artwork is produced is for uh, museums. They use it as a source of income. Um, I do a lot of work for well, I don't do a lot of work. I do two paintings for the USS Constitution Museum. These two works appear um, in their gift shop, and they have it in, online also. And they they come to me every a couple of months with a big order of prints, and they you know they they mark them up of course, and they sell them, and they have a steady stream of income. And a lot of museums do that. I know that um, MFA has prints in their shop. I'm sure that generates a lot of money for them. So it's a common thing now. Oh, this is actually kind of interesting, the Xantha Smith, just a little side story here. You notice it doesn't have a figurehead on it? Well, apparently it was stolen, and it appeared recently in a flea market in, in uh, Paris, and that's why they wanted me to, to take a picture of that. And, and they're going to re and it came back to the museum. They actually have it on display in the museum now. Apparently, there was somebody who didn't like who was on the figurehead. I think it was Andrew Jackson, maybe, or somebody. Some, I, I'm not a historian, so excuse my knowledge of history, but it was somebody who wasn't liked and it was torn off the ship. The other thing that, um, way that art reproduction is used is sometimes you have situations where a painting is extremely uh, badly damaged. This particular painting uh, is the a painting on, on the left is, was a painting of a, the wife of um, uh, one of the early governors or, of uh, Florida. Now, Florida is a very damp climate, and it's just awful on artwork. So um, I got a call one day, and they said, you know, we need to have this painting reproduced. I said, well, tell me about it. And they told me about it, and they said, you can't stand the painting upright. Because if you do, all the paint flakes fall off. <laughs> so, how do we, so how do we reproduce this? So um, I, well, I thought about it, and I said, well, you have to make a big file. And I'm, you know, I said, well, can you come? You know, and, well, we can't afford you to come down to Florida. 
Well, I said, do you know anybody local that does this? And I said, I and they said, we do. We have a photographer who works for us. And so I taught this guy how, how to photograph the, this painting on location in the museum. And he got up on a big ladder and he got lights and <laughs> the whole bit. And he sent me... Uh, he sent me 16 individual files, which I stitched together to make a huge um, file, which I was able to retouch. And then I made a same size reproduction canvas print, which is now in the museum in Florida. The other thing that um, uh, artists use um, uh, the reproductions for um, their income, you know, they can, if you sell your original painting, it, first of all, it's expensive for people to buy. Um, and people sometimes like to hold on to their paintings. Other people just make paintings to have reproductions made. And they, it's a steady stream of in, I'm going to move this, I think. <laughs> it's a steady stream of income for them. Um, and many of them have stores on Etsy or in, online galleries. There's, there's numerous sites that sell artwork. Uh, this, this painting is by uh, Ed Rice, who's, a, who's an artist up in... Um, in Melrose, where I live, and uh, I just made this last week. It's kind of a, it's a beautiful image. It's, it doesn't really show well here, but it's done on watercolor paper. Uh, also, digital, it's a way of printed, printing digital art, because you can't print digital art, if you think about it. How do you make digital, how do you make representations of it? It's, in a, it's digital, so you need some way of printing it. So what better way than on um, archival papers with pigment inks? So this is a series, T.J. Bransfield, uh, he comes to me every couple of months and he's got a series of images. He, I make up 20 or 30 of these and he, he has this flash sale where he sells out. He says, I'm only selling these for like 48 hours and if you place your order and then I'm closing out. And then he gets all these orders in through, I don't know, Facebook or whatever and, and, and then he comes to me with an order and I and they send them out. So it's, it, there's different ways of, for artists to market. I thought that was kind of an interesting one. He's, he's very successful at what he does. And finally, uh, interior, interior design. Um, this, this is a project I did um, with Chris Volpe and his wife, Anna Birch. Uh, that's the, um, the Wentworth Hotel. It's up in um, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And they came to Chris um, two or three years ago and said, Chris, we love the paintings you have in our lobby. He had some original paintings. We're redoing the, um, the hotel over, and we need to have some um, reproductions for the, we'd like to have some reproductions of your work in our hotel room. So uh, we said, okay. And then, of course, it went through a number of <laughs> proposals, counter-proposals, you know how it goes. And so eventually we ended up uh, coming up with um, uh, a series of four prints that went into the, uh, each of the rooms. There were 150-something rooms. Um, and and the prints, we, because they're in a hotel situation, we ended up laminating them. So I go, so to protect them from hotels. It's a pretty heavy use in a hotel. But we still had some nice um, reproduction quality. We were able to get um, some nice looking prints for the hotel. Okay, now this is, this is called, the next section is pushing the envelope. So this is an image by the Mars rover. It's, it's not the greatest image in the world. It's not the prettiest image in the world. But it was taken on Mars, which is pretty cool. And, um, and then lots, actually lots of images have been taken on Mars. In fact, I saw the other day you can actually take a tour of Mars, a virtual reality tour of Mars, just march around the planet with pictures. And the way they make those pictures is they stitch them all together. That, that picture was, a, that previous picture was one billion pixels. 
They're made from 85 individual images that were stitched together. Those must be pretty big images because this, there was only 85 of them, so they, have, they must have a pretty good camera at NASA. Anyway, I use, um, I use a similar sy system. Again, I'm, I apologize for the slide. It's a little fuzzy here, but it gives you the idea. So these are, this is a picture of Ann Gaffey's uh, Daisy Dog, um, which I made a canvas of. And these are screenshots, basically. And it shows the, the numerous images I took uh, of, the, of the painting on the right. And I take sections of it with a telephoto lens. And I have a really good camera. It's the best, the best that there is, and a really sharp lens. And I can zoom in just on sections. And when I stitch them all together at 200 megabytes of file, you end up with these enormous files. So sometimes I get files that are like over a gig, two, gig and a half, two gigs even, which is pretty big if you don't know what a gig is. And as a result, um, you can get really fine details when you zoom into an image. You can, and you can make really big prints. A lot of times when you have smaller files and you try to enlarge them, you can't capture the details. The other thing that I do is I light uh, the image, the painting from, I have a room in my studio with an overhead light and I light the paintings overhead. So it looks like it does in a gallery. So you get the, you, it brings out the texture of the painting. So you can see all the little grain. That's, that's the ball in the, in the uh, dog's mouth there. And you can see all the texture, the grain of the canvas and so on. Uh, this is Beverly Ripple's orange cap gun, which is this image here. Um, this was made from, I think I made, I think that was like tw 24 separate images of the cap gun. And maybe afterwards you can come up and take a good look at this. But, and this was specially lit. Um, I, I used two spotlights in addition to the regular lighting on this to bring out the, it's encaustic wax, the original, so it's kind of glossy. And Beverly wanted to show that glossiness. So this is, isn't something you normally do in art reproduction, but we thought it looked really great because I had shot this earlier for her. And so we shot it this way during the reproduction process. So it kind of shows you the glossiness of the painting and um, brings a certain realism to it. And what's next? Okay, this is, a, uh, this is an image that I pulled from the web. I saw a, uh, something on um, the BBC about, uh, it was digital, 3D digital printing. Now usually you know, 3D printing is, is used for sculptures and that sort of thing. Well now somebody's investigating, um, actually capturing the surface detail of paintings uh, and then reproducing, uh, uh, making a reproduction that actually has the brush strokes, the exact brush strokes of the original painting printed in 3D on the, on the painting. I mean, that's, <laughs> I have to say, when I saw that, I was impressed. I, unfortunately, I wasn't able to find, trace down the article. I did a lot of searching trying to find out where I saw that. But this is a photo showing uh, uh, the, the system, the 3D system that they use for that. And this is an image showing how the, the paint was applied and built up with a 3D printer. So uh, there's a lot coming in the world of digital printing and the possibilities of digital are pretty, are pretty amazing. Um, and we'll be getting into um, what the implications of all that are tonight. And hopefully some of this um, work I've shown you will inspire some conversation about this topic. Um, and that's it.
So I really, again, I'm honored to be here, and thank you so much for uh, having me. And if, any questions? Or got questions afterward? Okay. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Okay, hi everybody. I'm Hannah Goodwin at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and um, I'm going to talk about reproduction for a completely different purpose, which is reproducing art or using reproductions in art as a point of accessibility for people who are blind or have low vision, um, but also for loads of other people, because um, I think most of us who work in any type of museum recognize a couple of things. One is that we're a culture of all kinds of learners and many people like to put their hands on things. And also, as soon as you say you can't touch, there's something that just comes over people. <laughs> you know, the desire to touch grows. So, Okay, so we utilize touch in a lot of different ways in the museum. So. Uh, I just wanted to give a little bit of context. Uh, the Museum of Fine Arts, if you have not been there, is a comprehensive museum. So we have all kinds of artwork from many, many eras and all parts of the world, painting, decorative arts, sculpture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And our desire is that it's accessible to everybody. And making art that cannot be touched as most of it is, accessible to everyone means thinking about it in a way, a variety of ways. And there is certainly not one way that works for every person or every type of art. So on the screen right now are two images. On your, uh, your left is a pair of hands touching what is actually a small rattle. And there's a couple of small sculptures in the case, and these are all objects that were made by a group of teenagers from Perkins with whom we have a partnership, and they had an exhibition. And there was a lot of talk about how to make their exhibition accessible to them. And so we had, they wanted their art to be touched by everyone, and we did have, we had a problem with some of the smaller pieces because we were afraid they would walk away. So we had certain times when you could take the, the bonnet or the cover off of the case, including at the opening. So the image is showing that time when, there, when anyone could touch them. But maybe most importantly, the artists themselves. On the right is a picture of... Uh, a visitor and one of our guides exploring art in our classical gallery, the Roman court gallery, directly, but with, with gloves. Uh, we do conservation as one of our goals as well, so we respect the artwork. Um, but there is something about direct touch that is, is really remarkable. So using reproductions on tours, uh, there, are, in order to make it work, there are a lot of things that we consider. Uh, the most important is probably the, the properties of touch versus sight. Touch is a wildly different experience than looking at something. And for those of us who do both at the same time, it's not the same as 
touching something if you're not looking at it. So sometimes what looks really good as a tactile object for someone who has vision is not actually very useful as a point of accessibility on a tour. And so, so it's, a, it's a bit of a dance of trying to keep in mind what our goal is and uh, what works, what works for a particular object. Again, one size doesn't fit all. There's not one solution to every type of artwork and um, a lot of creativity involved. So the, the reproductions are really a supplement to description, to looking. So to looking if someone has some vision, but also because although I'm talking about these primarily for our visitors who are blind or have low vision, we use them with all kinds of other visitors as well, with and without disabilities. They're an aid in understanding, and some of this goes back to that difference between touch and sight and really understanding what you have in a reproduction and what you don't have, So, which I'll talk about more in a few minutes. How to handle something. If I just hand an object to someone and give them no context, no information, it might be useful, but chances are it's not actually going to be all that useful. What's missing? So it isn't the real thing. If I hand someone a plaster cast that's painted to look like a bronze sculpture, it's not the same. The temperature is going to be different. The weight is going to be different, just as a couple of examples. So in terms of that question of authenticity, <laughs> you know, this is, again, keeping in mind what we're doing with it, what we need to think about in order for it to be um, as meaningful as possible. And again, not just for people who are blind. So we have a lot of different things that we use, tools and materials, reproductions, objects that are similar, things that are mass produced, things that are one of a kind, um, lots of different stuff. I really could use some more space in my office. So replicas, museums love replicas, although I have to confess I'm a little disappointed. I would say in the last six to eight years, there are fewer and fewer replicas of actual objects and more things that are an actual object somewhere, but somewhat shared between museums. I could go to one museum and find the same Egyptian you know, little sculpture that I can find at another. But anyway, uh, so in front of you on the screen are, on the left is an object in a case. It's a bad picture. Sorry, it's a little dark. It's a double, it's a relief photo. It's an ancient Egyptian piece. It's actually double-sided. And on the right is a reproduction. And what I love about this is that the reproduction is the same size as the actual object, which is fairly unusual. So, and although the material is different, it's similar. Same color, similar weight, you know, so that's, this is a, about as good as it gets with a reproduction in terms of, of working with it as a point of access. Or I suppose having it on your wall as a decoration to remind you of um, an experience. This is similar. Um, 
on the left is a reproduction that, again, same size and scale as it is in the case. So reproductions in use, um, lots of different things. Uh, for starting at the top left is we have uh, a stick map, stick and shell map from Oceania. And this is a replica of it. She actually doesn't need her gloves, but she's going back and forth between sculpture and gloves, so she's choosing to wear the gloves. On the top right are two young women with a raven rattle. It's actually a reproduction of a raven rattle. And I have that over there. You can look at it later if you're, you're interested. It's, so this is something that is similar but not identical to a piece that we have in our collection. It's in a case. It ha it's wood. It has pigment. We would never hand that around to people. You know, um, over time, it would it would kind of disappear. On going around clockwise, the one on the lower left is we had an exhibition several years years ago of Dale Chihuly's work, and um, he and his studio created ten elements for us that we could use on tours with people who are blind. And his work, a lot of his work is made up of multiple elements that are configured in a sculpture or installation. And so this image is of one of our, uh, a young man who is part of a partnership who's coming to the museum monthly, holding one of the of the elements. I can't remember what it's called. They had all these great names like frog, frog, frog toes, and you know, um, this was not the frog toes. Uh, but you can tell from this picture that it's, it's a pretty fabulous experience. And what was beautiful about this is, is that it is the glass. It's the glass, this shape, you're going to see in different sculptures. So it has that, those qualities that are so wonderful about touch texture, weight, temperature, that, that we see, if we're sighted, we can see, but what we see is an approximation of something. We're not seeing the experience. Tactile graphics, so sometimes we use tactile graphics. This is a color picture with a raised line, and again, I can hand this around, um, or you can come look at it after. And there are a variety of kinds of graphics that use some kind of 3D printing or something similar. When I first started working in this field, it was usually uh, a layer of clear silkscreen ink on top of something. So it would be built up that way. Super expensive, like crazy expensive <laughs> to do that. Um, and, and so now there, there are so many different ways that it's happening and things that are, people are doing, and color has come into the mix. And that's the other thing that has changed. When I first started doing this kind of work, if you wanted color, then you had to go with that clear silkscreen layer, um, or it would be a uniform color that was uh, with like a thermoform machine or something. And the problem with that is if you have if someone has some vision, then it's nice if they have the color. Okay, tactile family art cards. So the museum has a collection of cards that 
for design for families that work with different objects in the collection, and we made some in a tactile form. So I also have those, and so I can, I can send one around, and there's some other up here. So you can just get an idea of, of what it is. And some pieces work better in this kind of tactile format than others. For this particular project, what we wanted was for everyone to have the same thing. So the same set of treasure cards that were that everyone was using who had vision were also made into the tactile cards. Uh, so just more of those. A little project to use try tactile and audio. So it's actually the it goes with a touch table, which can be accessible, but they're usually not. And so this was a pilot to try to see if there's a way we could make a touch table interactive that went with a mini exhibition um, exploring style through different teapots accessible to people who are blind. And it's a combination of tactile and audio. Has a smart pen, which I don't have with me, but we can pass around the book. Jim, can I bother you to just send that book around? That'd be awesome, thank you. Um, actually, let me back up a minute. So there are a couple things that I don't have on the screen, but I, I couldn't decide, is this, does this really fall into the category of reproduction or not? But these are some of the ways in which we look at art and use. It is a form of reproduction all the time. It's quick, and uh, we can make multiples. And it's something, it's a, there's a swell form machine, and um, so again, I'll send these around. There's, it's much easier to edit, like we do a lot of editing. These are, each one has a specific use, which I'm not gonna go into right now, but if you're curious, I'd be really happy to talk to you about it. And um, so I'll just send a couple of these around. And then also, I have a piece by a company called Haptic Art. And um, I've known them for a couple of years. We've been working together. It's their work, our artwork, their, their work, our feedback. I think, does, would you say that's fair? I just saw that you're here. Hi, Constantine. And Constantine's here, so you can ask him lots and lots of questions. So this is another, this is 3D printing. And um, I think we have four now that we are different types of artwork. Experimenting with and getting feedback from different visitors. And this piece is a really beautiful relief that is about eight feet tall. It's really big. And, um, well, I'll just hand it around. One of the things that is really interesting about working with something like this is kind of goes back to that beginning piece of what. Um, what is useful and one of the things that I, I think about a piece like this is that it would be really interesting to loads of people to, to have something in the gallery that they could touch. The piece kind of begs to be touched but it really can't be touched. It's very soft stone and um, it, it's, it's remarkable in many different ways and we usually carry our tactiles with us into the galleries. So something like this 
A one isn't bad, but if I were to carry around six, that would, that would be hard. Um, but there are some really wonderful properties to this, and it's been really fun to work with haptic art and also different visitors to kind of explore some options that we haven't really looked at before and get their feedback and, and work with things in the process. <laughs> so this is my all, it's all good, which is that we use everything. You know, anything that works, there are so many possibilities, and um, it's, it's really interesting. So there are the museum replicas. Postcards can come in handy sometimes. Um, things that are similar but different. So again, the Raven Rattle is very, very similar. similar. It has all of the same features as the one in our collection, but it's not an exact replica. 3D printing, for which there are many things going on. Uh, production graphics, meaning some of the different types of graphics that I showed you. Raised line drawings, so the black and white things that I sent around, but also some of the other things that I talked about could come into that. And then um, reproducing specific things by hand. So. That's all. Thanks. Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Hannah and Boston Ethanaim, for having me today, and thank you, Elizabeth, for the introduction. Um, today, I'm going to be talking about a specific use of 3D printing in a museum installation for an exhibition at the Peabody Essex Museum. So the exhibition itself was called American Epics, Thomas Hart Benton and Hollywood. And um, this was the first major Benton show in 25 years. And for a good part of his career, he was working in Hollywood. And he both influenced Hollywood and Hollywood influenced his work. Uh, and he had a really unique um, cinematic style to, to his work. And we wanted to capture that. So he had a very deliberate painting process. Um, his paintings are very much about storytelling as we all know Hollywood is as well. So in the exhibition, we juxtaposed films um, with artwork and gave them equal weight in the gallery. So you can, you can see here, um, that's a screen. That's a poster that Benton actually did for the exhibition, which gets into the idea of reproduction as well. Um, this was very important to us because, of course, it was the thesis of the show. And we wanted visitors to see the films uh, as large as we could get them, just as they would be uh, in, a, in a theater setting. And as you can see, we even incorporated seating from uh, movie theaters. Uh, we actually got some vintage theater seats to put into the galleries, and people use them, which is awesome. Seating in museum exhibitions, highly recommended. Um, I'm sure you all agree. And uh, you can see a film right here between two landscape paintings. So really immersing the, uh, the media right in the exhibition. Uh, amongst the media, the films included clips from full-length Hollywood uh, features, newsreels, and some uh, wartime propaganda. So why did we 3D print a maquette for the exhibition? Um, first, we wanted to create a unique visitor experience. That was the most important part. But we also wanted to give people a chance to understand um, Benton's process, get really into the, into the process that he was using to create his work. 
So his process was very detailed and deliberate. Um, he'd make a sketch and then a series of drawings and then he'd make a clay model, then he'd paint the model, then he'd light the model, then he'd do more sketches, then he'd do a cartoon, then he'd actually do the painting. And this went on and on and on in his studio. Um, he was deeply interested in light, color, and perspective. And we wanted to recreate an abstract studio in the exhibition. So in the third space of the exhibition, you got to see this, some paints and some chemicals and the reproduction that I'll be talking about today and a kind of a, a clipboard there. There's also some media there as well. There's a film uh, juxtaposed to it um, right there. And I should note at the end of the show, we actually bookmark this to some degree and we have an interview with uh, Edward R. Murrow on a reproduction uh, vintage television set uh, in Benton's studio. So the studio comes up later in the exhibition. So as Benton said, he could feel paintings in his hands uh, when he was working with these maquettes. And we really wanted visitors to have that experience. And um, of course, if we had the original object, we clearly couldn't let them touch the object. So we had to find some way of, of reproducing it for the show. So we gave visitors that opportunity. In fact, here you see someone touching the maquette in the exhibition uh, with a guard looking on, not yelling anything because they're allowed, they're allowed to touch that. It's really, it's really OK in this instance. Um, and this entire studio area was touchable too. You could, all this stuff was glued down. Uh, I give total props to our team that dealt with the props, I guess, to, uh, to glue every piece of this down so it couldn't be extracted for souvenirs or, or, or tossed around the gallery. Um, so how did we go about doing this? The original maquette was in the Milwaukee Art Museum, uh, which was one of the venues that the, uh, the show was going to. And uh, it was deemed too fragile to travel. It was originally on our checklist, and they told us we, we couldn't have it because it was, it was too fragile. And we totally understood it. It's, it's made of clay and is extremely fragile. Um, these maquettes are rare. Uh, Benton um, really considered them to some degree as ephemeral parts of his process. They weren't meant to be displayed publicly. Uh, and I don't think he really had much intention to save them. But a few of them did get saved along the way. And my first thought upon hearing well, we can't get the Benton maquette uh, for the exhibition was, well, let's just 3D print it. And everyone's like, oh, well, how can we do that? So we went about trying to find the right way to do this to be very sensitive to the fact that we were about to introduce a reproduction of an object that was meant to be in the collection, uh, meant to be in the exhibition into the, into the show. So we, we thought long and hard about how we could do that. So here's the original object in context. And you can see just from looking at this, it is pretty delicate. Um, our first decision, and you can see it's right there. I can actually, I can actually use this to point at that. It's right there. And uh, this is color. That's black and white. We want to distinguish between the two to show that this was a facsimile. Uh, there was a photograph of the color version right next to it. So people got a sense. And it was clearly labeled, this is a reproduction. Please touch. We also wanted to make sure that it was a full-size replica. So that is the actual size. It's the same size as, as the original. And finally, we wanted it printed in a material that felt like dried clay. We didn't want it to feel artificial in any way or get it as close to the real uh, um, material feel as we could. So we hired an industrial designer uh, named Andrew Camardella to head to Chicago. Uh, well, he's in Chicago, excuse me, and he traveled up to the Milwaukee Art Museum to create a 3D uh, scan of the object. So that process requires taking a projector. So here you see a, a projector that's shooting a grid onto the actual real object, and there are preparators in, in, in the place. This is very fragile. That's cardboard right there. So the whole thing is mounted on cardboard, and that's dried clay. Um, he uses this projector, and he projects a light grid onto it, and then he uses a digital SLR uh, camera right here to, to capture high-res high uh, images, very much like Steve was talking about. And 
that's the easy part. The hard part is then um, it takes maybe a full day to do this. Then he actually has to do something with those files. So here you see a screenshot of the digital scanning process. And it takes maybe 35 to 40 hours for him to take all of those files to stitch it together to create the end printable uh, 3D, 3D uh, object. And it's funny when I look at this because we edit a lot of film. I, I do videography at, at, at the museum as well. I manage the videographer. And this reminds me very much like editing a film. So here we are, including a film-like capture of a maquette in a Benton exhibition that incorporates film. So it was kind of this weird circle. That's what the print looks like 3D rendered um, on a computer screen. And the distinguishing mark between the red and the gold is that we couldn't get a printer of the prints in this material that we wanted to use that was big enough to print the entire thing. So we printed it in two parts. The red part is the first part, which is cardboard, and the rest is the clay part, which is mounted on cardboard. So we separated it into two different pieces. Um, here's a comparison of the two, so you can actually see the 3D rendering on the computer, and this is a side view of the actual clay maquette. And you can see every little nook and cranny is captured by, uh, by the, the photographs that are taken. And this is what it looks like when it um, is being printed. So what happens is the digital file gets sent from the computer to a printer, and then overnight, magic happens, it prints. Uh, some, some of these take between 24, 36 hours to actually print out. Uh, if you've ever seen, anyone's ever seen like a video of how these things work, basically the printer arm moves back and forth and layer by layer by layer by layer just stacks up to create to create the final object. We used a material called sandstone here. Um, it's kind of tiny particles that you can imagine just kind of uh, bonded together. It's really not sandstone, but in the industry they refer to it as sandstone. Um, we could have printed it in nylon or metal or something like that, but we chose the sandstone because we wanted that, that feel. Uh, this will show up later in, the ex in my presentation because something happened to it um, because it was made out of a fragile material. Um, but it gave us that clay feel, and that's what we were most interested in. And uh, if anyone wants to touch it, I mentioned there there's the, the maquette there, but I also have a piece that broke off at the Nelson Atkins Museum. I have to say it was fully intact at the Peabody Essex Museum, uh, but it got three months of use at our museum, and then it went to their museum and got broken. So I can hand this around. Feel free to come up and touch the So you can see the finished piece slowly starting to emerge here. It has to be cleaned up. All the excess material is blown off and sometimes chipped away. And this, this is the main mass of the piece. Um, this, this is not an assembly of parts. This is all one solid object. Uh, you, can, you can see, you know, I feel comfortable just kind of picking this thing up like this. It's, it's all one piece. It's all one piece. <laughs> <laughs> it's traveled, it's traveled up in a little dust on my hand, which is perfect. I don't often get to grab art objects, so any opportunity I can, I just gotta grab them. And here you can see it again coming out of the printer from another angle. Um, and that's the finished piece. It's then uh, sealed and strengthened by, by being placed in a, uh, a cyanoacrylate bath. Uh, kind of just hardens it up a little bit more and fills in some of the, uh, the porous, porousness of it to give it a little more solidity because we knew it was going to be touched frequently. Um, and here we've added the piece of cardboard to the top so you can see the little, the little seam that's right there between the, the, the two pieces. So here we have the final object uh, in the galleries. 
as I mentioned before, it's exactly how we displayed it, including instructions to touch it. Um, the decision display effect, similarly, as I mentioned before, was not made lightly. Um, the curatorial interpretive teams thought long and hard about this, and uh, even though I came up with the head pretty quickly, we had, a, we, had a, we had to talk about this and figure out how we were going to do it and why we were going to do it. But we felt it was invaluable to the visitor experience to have this in the Benton process section. Uh, we labeled it clearly as a reproduction. We wanted visitors to feel it in their hands. This was important to us. And we're constantly creating experiences like this at PEM. So for previous exhibitions, some of you may have seen for an Impressionist on the Water exhibition, we reproduced a fake 23-foot Impressionist boat that made you feel like you were floating down the Seine, including smell. And I, know it was a, I knew it was a success when one of our interpreters grabbed me by the arm and said, Jim, I get seasick. I have to get off this thing. So it's like, yes, yes we, actually, we actually did it. Um, and if you go to the PBDS6 Museum within the next few weeks, our Asian Amsterdam exhibition right now has the first experience when you walk in, you hear some sound, you hear a narrative, and you're confronted by nine large vessels of peppercorn, clove, and cinnamon. The idea is that we are immersing you in smell so you can get a sense of what, um, what those spices are going to mean throughout the rest of the exhibition. So we're always looking for ways of creating new immersive experiences um, for, our, for our visitors. And then finally, here it is displayed at the Nelson Atkins Museum. Um, I think their display um, was in a, in a location that was much heavier traffic, and uh, it, was, it was touched a lot. I, I reached out to the uh, interpretive uh, lead there, and she, she made it clear that um, people were touching it a lot. It broke within the first couple of weeks, that piece, but they left that piece as it is up for the rest of the exhibition. And if you take a good look at it, it's got some dirt marks on it, it's got some handprints on it. People really were touching it, which, is, which was awesome. We were really excited to, to hear that. So, um, that's all I have today. I'm happy to ask, answer some questions when we get up in, in the, um, the discussion roundtable here. Um, if you need to contact me, feel free. I've left some, some cards over there. Uh, it's Jim Olson at PEM.org or at Boston Beer Man on Twitter. That's a whole other presentation. We'll talk about that later. But thank you all.